Welcome to the very first episode of Film is Lit, the podcast where we review a piece of literature and compare it to its film or TV adaptation. My name is Danny. I'm the film expert. My name is Laura, and I'll be playing the role of book expert. And we're a real-life couple. That's and, right. and I know what you're thinking. Oh my God, what if they break up? What's, what would I'm happen to the, the podcast? Well, I have the editing software, so it'd probably continue with me. <laughs> Maybe we'd reconnect sometime down the line, and she'd be a guest host, and then eventually come back to being a full-on co-host. But you don't have to worry about it. We're in love. I'm getting down on one knee. This is great. Visual cues are great for... It's a bad way to start. Yep. That was my knee hitting the ground. Laura? He just hit the coffee table in his his hand. Don't ruin my proposal, Laura. (laughs) Oh my god, is this really happening? Laura, will you do me the honors of being my co-host for life? I will! She said yes! We already live together, it's about time. Yeah, I don't really have a choice, especially in quarantine. If I want to do this podcast, I needed a co-host. You're the only one legally I'm allowed to interact with since we already live together. Excuse me, we co-developed this. It was all your idea. We've already gone off the rails. We're a minute and 40 seconds into our very first episode, and it's uh, already falling apart. Um... The book and movie that we're discussing today, uh, the title is Call Call Me By by Your Your Name. Name. Yeah. Uh, One of my favorite movies of 2017. Laura and I saw it at the Arclight Hollywood. We had just been dating for a few months and decided to go see this movie. It was getting great reviews. I had actually, well, this goes into our journey. We have a very loose format of our podcast right now. We, this is our, we're new at this. This is our. As it goes. Yeah. We're, we're, we're loose, we're young, we're free. And to all our followers, all four of you right now, mom and dad, um, and maybe your parents too, yeah. I'm sorry you have to literally uh, listen to us learn as we go, but... Um, no, it's going to be great. Yeah. Never apologize. Eh, well, maybe. We'll Never see. Apologize. We'll see. I edit these things, so we'll see how good they are. We're going to start with... Um, our own personal journeys with uh, either the film or the book or both. Um, Laura, why don't you tell your journey with Call Me By Your Name? Okay. Well, the first time I had ever even heard about it was through Danny, which is kind of how I hear about a lot of our pop culture or my pop culture references now. Danny asked me if I wanted to go see this. I said, sure. I walked into the theater and I didn't even know it was based on a novel. So the credits start rolling. I'm already in love immediately. As soon as the soundtrack begins, I'm immediately in love. And it says based on a novel by Andre Asimov. And I go, God damn it. <laughs> I didn't get a chance to read the novel. So that's something that, oh yeah, our listeners don't know Laura yet. She, that's a cardinal sin of her watching a um, film adaptation before reading the novel. Yes, I am such a diehard reader that normally I really don't like to see a movie before I've read the book or the short story. But no matter, with this short or with this novel and this movie, it ended up not mattering because I love both almost as much as the other. However, in this case, I did end up 
sort of swaying toward the movie a little bit over the book because of the ending. We'll talk about it a little bit later, but Danny took me to this movie at the Arclight Hollywood. I laughed. I cried. I had great summer memories stirred up for myself from a summer camp that I used to attend as a camper and then as a staff member. And then afterward, I immediately ordered the book online, read it, sobbed, (laughs) cried. I think uh, Danny still has a picture saved of me while I'm ugly crying in bed reading this book. (laughs) Having just finished the book. I don't think we were living together yet, so I snapped him a picture of me, and I am just destroyed uh, by the ending. So I don't think I ever went through... I can't believe I went through a period of my life not knowing of this novel and movie. So that's pretty much my journey. Um, Now I've read the book twice, and I really came to enjoy the book more as I did more research for this podcast. In fact, I listened to the book the second time because I found out that Army Hammer reads the audiobook. Cool. And... You know what? That added a whole nother level of fun and meaning to it when I got to hear the actor that played Oliver read it and sort of, it brought the book a little bit more alive to me. So that's my journey. How about, Danny, you share now. What's your journey with yeah. Calling By Your Name? Yeah, so it was released, um, in, well, in limited release in L.A. in December of 2017 and early on, I had seen trailers for it. I heard that I was getting good reviews, but it didn't really seem like something that I wanted to see in the theater. It it certainly looked interesting, and it had some craft behind it, I could tell. I'm a fan of Army Hammer, too, ever since the social network. Didn't know much about Timothy Chalamet. This was kind of his breakout role, mm-hmm. as we'll discuss. But yeah, I I didn't plan on seeing it. But then through work, through this kind of mixer, holiday mixer, I met uh, the producer, one of the producers. This film has seven producers. But I met uh, Howard Roseman mm-hmm. and had a conversation with him. I didn't know who I was talking to at that night until he told me he was a producer. I'm like, oh, cool. What if... Like, what have you done? And he's like, oh, well, uh, have you seen my latest picture? Uh, it's uh, Call Me By Your Name. I was like, no way. Because <laughs> I knew that it was getting this acclaim and it was probably going to rack up um, some Oscar nominations, mm-hmm. which it eventually did. But after meeting him, I'm like, okay, maybe I should. Uh, I, had, I had a good conversation with him and he kind of set the scene for me. I'm like, yeah, I'm definitely going to go watch this ASAP. After break, when we came back, we I was like, "Yeah, let's definitely go. Let's definitely go seek this out." It's uh, interesting that you reminded me that it came out in December because this movie is such a story that's grounded in the summer. Yeah. That I always thought that we, my memory was that we had seen it during the summer, like July, which right. Is I mean, I didn't even remember the it came essence out in of summer. It just feels it warm summer. Yeah, you just yeah you did you. Definitely more than anything, this movie really evokes the feeling you get out of nature, specifically like the smells and sounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, you can't smell a movie yet, uh, <laughs> but well, that Spike Kids 4D, you, you do the scratch and set. Remember that? Oh, uh, 
I feel like that was a plain movie for me. I can't believe I connected Spy Kids 4D and Call Me By Your Name. Very similar movies, <laughs> just kidding. But yeah, this movie is just so visceral in its depiction of nature. You just feel it. Yeah, it's summer, It kind of transports yeah. you to its location. It's also very sensual and despite your sexuality you don't have to be like i'm a straight man uh, laura i'm straight um <laughs> but i still you still feel the the longing for connection and the sexuality that's just bursting throughout it, it it's just it reaches something deeper than your just you know base instincts it, well, it speaks to something deep yeah, within you of course the movie is essentially a love story sort of a summer love story and further than sensual for me it's sort of it's a coming of age story simultaneously and I think that's what really pulls me in so I don't have to be gay to understand the growth that you go through when you fall in love with not only your first love but also when you fall in love with that person that you, you know, almost comes to define your life as like the love of your life. And so I think th those two ideas and experiences come together so perfectly and, in this book and movie. Well, more specifically, it deals with like summer loves right. that, that and, cannot be. Like I think we all have universally been through kind exactly. of a relationship that was doomed to fail from the start just like you know like meeting someone at, at a summer camp like right. speaking of summer yeah, like relationships absolutely. form at summer camp that they, they can mean a lot to you and you'll remember them forever but they're fleeting in the sense that they they, they can't last so yeah i think the ephemeral nature of everything in this movie and book also adds to the reason you get so drawn in no matter what age you are because from the perspective of somebody, take me, who has lived that kind of visceral summer experience of going to a summer camp and maybe having a crush on someone who was there as a camper or as a staff member, or even just sort of the nature of looking back in time and thinking about being a 17-year-old and actually having a summer where all you literally, all you have to do is sit and nap and read and go swimming and go on a bike ride in the country and hang out with friends and eat the summer fruits and have dinner with your family. Like from a perspective of an adult who doesn't have that, all of that just calls you to those moments where there was nothing to do but be present. And yeah. I think that's really one of the things that draws me into both the book and the novel. And then an added layer of that is just finding that love, that first love. And then again, like I think I'm going to go into a little bit uh, later in the podcast is talking about how not only did Elio have this experience of finding his first love, he was actually lucky enough. And I guess on the other side, unfortunate enough to have the experience of finding someone he really could have had the love of his life with and having to say, it's not possible. Yeah. with this person and this is something that I have to move on from so I just think for all of those reasons what an incredible pair of artwork yeah it certainly reminds me of of being a teenager when it comes to first loves comedian Mike Birbiglia has a great joke about 
when he was in high school dating his girlfriend and, and realizing he was in love of being like, yep, I'm 17 and I'm done. That's it for me. It's like, obviously not. Obviously you have much more life to live and you're blinded by this love that you can't really see beyond that sometimes. And in, in his stand-up set, he wasn't seeing the red, the clear red flags that his sure. girlfriend was giving out. Uh, there are no red flags really with Oliver and Elio, but they're relationship the circumstances they can't uh, be together because of the uh, culture politics in the 80s people not as accepting of uh, gay relationships and also army hammer had what we learn at the end a girlfriend back in the states who he eventually married well and, and over that too i also just think because it's so rooted in the summer in the very beginning they have a couple of conversations about how this is someone who's going to be there for six weeks. You know, it's in Italy, so there's a physical distancing of them. And it's very clearly something that's supposed to just be a really short window. Mm-hmm. That, And this is something that the family has done consistently. And so they know it's just sort of a here and gone situation. So they set up really early that this is going to be a finite period. And that... To me, also, we can we can get into the uh, the book and movie differences now, but so I wanted to use the fact that we already know that it's that the storyline is only going to take place in a very short time frame as a way to talk about how well the movie and the book talk about time and how when you realize that there's something more maybe that you have to a relationship or you you realize that you only have a finite amount of time to be in this place with these people you know it's it's really hard to be present sometimes until the end mm-hmm. and it's so heartbreaking almost to watch the movie unfold and now like i said i have read the book twice And I've watched the movie countless times. And when I say countless, I mean, I've literally watched scenes over and over within a single day. And I've probably watched this movie once a week since I saw it. (laughs) Or since it came out on on Blu-ray. We watched it before we recorded this podcast, and she watched it yesterday. Yeah. (laughs) So believe me when I say that I've seen this movie enough times to understand it. But... It's so heartbreaking to watch it unfold when you start it again and you see, and in the book, Elio Elio even comments a few times that he tries to stop and take snapshots to be able to almost heal before the pain comes of Oliver leaving. And even though he tries to do that, and even though I've tried to do that in my life, you know that it, it doesn't quite work. And I think that's part of the heartbreaking part of this whole story is you know that it's going to end and you know that Oliver is going to leave and you think back on your life and you think back about times that had to end as well. And it just does such a great time of taking you through that pain. And then at the end when we should mention, by the way, that this podcast will be very spoiler heavy. Full, 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 spoilers <laughs> full spoilers for both the book and movie. And we will be announcing each week the upcoming 
adaptation because we want to make sure that people can go back and either read or watch the movie, whatever they want to do. But going back to what I was saying, the movie does such a great job of wrapping up with the father's monologue, Michael Stuhlberg's or Michael Stuhlbarg's monologue, which is also in the book, but I think is actually more powerful watching in the movie because of his performance. He is able to take you through that pain. And one of the lines that makes me cry every time is, don't kill it. And with it, the joy you felt. Oh, you should look at her. She's tearing, <laughs> tearing up right up. now. Because that's that's part of the movie. And that's why I say it doesn't matter if you have been in a gay relationship or not. It's a bigger statement about the finality of those flames that burn brightest and hottest and fastest. You know, it's. I think almost everyone can connect to a time where they were in a situation with people that you knew was going to end and no matter how much you wanted to be present and savor it and make sure that you didn't miss those moments or maybe you were oblivious and didn't come to realize what it meant to you by the end, you have to go through that pain because those great, those greatest things in life can't stay with you. You can't live in those times, you know, all the time. So I just, uh, Every time I watch this movie or reread this book, it just blows my mind with how tender and, yeah, emotional it is. Yeah, it's a movie with a relatively simple story. And I should say I'm I'm biased towards movie with traditional kind of plots. I'm a a big fan of thrillers. and a plot guy. And a fan of uh, sci-fi. Those are my two favorite genres. And this was kind of, kind of why I was reticent to watch this movie at first. Because it's like, oh, it's a movie about you know two guys who come to have this relationship in Italy. And it, it looks beautiful and well-made. But it doesn't really look like my style. But you really feel the emotional journey. And you really get sucked in. Guadagnino kind of hypnotizes you. Um, and it's just it's riveting to watch watch these events unfold and to watch them grow together and eventually it, you you know in the back of your mind um, that their eventual end is going to come. But like like Elio in this relationship, you kind of trick yourself into thinking like, no, the movie's going to continue. They're mm-hmm. going to continue hanging out. And then when they go to the train scene and they finally depart. It's just like, damn, that, yeah, I'd, that's life. And then the movie kicks you in the heart once again with thinking that you're going to have some kind of happy ending. And it is relatively happy, but the news is devastating of having Oliver call Elio to tell him that, you know, he's married, essentially like breaking it, their relationship off for good, like the point of no return. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, um, but let's let's get into uh, what what we're supposed to do at this podcast. The differences. Oh, well, we've already been doing it a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh yeah, we can dig deep. Let's uh, let's go. Let's let's start with the uh, time period. This came up in my research. So the novel takes place in 1987, correct? But um, Guadagnino changed it to uh, 1983. Uh, for the film, partially because 
the world was already far deeper into the AIDS crisis by 1987 than 1983. And as Guadagnino said, he wanted to make it so in, in 1983, so it wasn't as intense and could be a little more utopic. So there wasn't kind of that cloud of the AIDS crisis over them. That was one of the big changes. But um, And also Guadagnino was 12 in 1983, and he wanted to use music from his childhood. Oh, so a lot fun. of the songs present in the movie are the songs that Guadagnino grew well, up that, listening to. Doesn't that in itself speak to the fact that it's so nostalgic for yeah. that time and sort of placing yourself in that time period of remembering the songs that were around and popular and continuously playing on the radio when you were such and such a, an age, you know? Because it's there's so many things that are so visceral uh, about that experience of being young. I just, I love that detail. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I still remember. When darkness turns to light, it ends tonight. I, I listened to that song on repeat when I was uh, broken up with and uh, when I was going off to college. That's, right. We don't have and to get into that, but I'll always remember that exactly. song. And I'll always remember that summer, too, because right, of I had I had been dating a woman who was a year younger than me. So I was going off to college and she was not. And I had convinced myself, oh yeah, obviously this is going to work. Right. When, <laughs> and especially throughout that summer, I was just trying to live in, live in that relationship and keep it alive, not clearly avoiding the fact that it was destined to fail. So that's kind of my, my nostalgic, painful connection uh, to this movie that, that I always end up thinking about. But yeah, what what's another big difference between the novel and the movie that uh, stands out to you? So the biggest difference to me is the ending because the movie ends so well, sort of in the middle of Elio's pain. There's an ending where Elio and Oliver have to say goodbye at the train station and then a few months later, it's December, it's clearly Hanukkah season, they're decorating the house and cooking latkes, and Elio gets the call and finds out that Oliver is engaged and probably will not be coming back, even for a visit, probably. And it ends with Elio staring existentially into the fireplace. And as Sufjan Stevens' visions, Sufjan Stevens' visions of Gideon plays, yeah, with visions of Gideon, and you know we'll probably talk about this later in the podcast. But something that I love about, particularly about literature and movies, is when it ends in a very ambiguous way. We don't have a happy bow tie at the end of the story. I really love studying the human experiences that keep us human, I guess. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of the simplest way of saying those things. So the movie is so powerful to me because after Elio's father tells him, don't kill the pain that you're experiencing right now because you don't want to you want to feel these things and eventually you'll see that you'll grow from these things and you'll become a stronger person for the next relationship that you find yourself in rather than someone who's repressed those feelings 
maybe to find that they'll bubble up at some point and make you a weaker person in that relationship down the road. And so for Elio to stare into the fireplace and you see all of those emotions that his father told him to feel go go across his face during that whole thing. You even see him smile at one point, which is so... At the very end, like, <laughs> he's, very like end. he's realizing... He, he's heeding his father's exactly, advice. Exactly. And I mean, of course, that destroyed me in the movie theater. I yeah. was sobbing and I couldn't leave for, you know, 10 minutes because I was crying so hard. So to me, that is so beautiful. It's such a beautiful way of shutting the book on Oliver because mm-hmm. he's no longer an option. But you're seeing that, of course, Elio is still hurting because it's only been a few months since Oliver left. But you can see that he's going to move on and he's going to be that stronger person that his father coached him to be, that his father couldn't be, that he shares, that he never had the kind of relationship that Elio and Oliver had because there was always something standing in his way. Now, after that whole (laughs) deal, in the book, it's very different. So Oliver comes back and visits multiple times. He comes back to Italy. Mm Mm-hmm. And there are, there's sort of a a moment where maybe they kiss, but it's not the same. And so, you know, it's kind of clear that maybe it was just that situation that got them together in the first place. And then later you do find out that Oliver's engaged and he, you know, whatever, gets married. It goes as far as to the point where Oliver actually has two kids And Elio goes to visit him. He's now teaching at a university in, I think, like, Massachusetts or Connecticut or something on the East Coast. And Elio comes back and they have this drink and this whole thing. And it's sort of a look back on their relationship and, like, oh, are you happy? Did you get what you wanted out of life? And clearly Elio has not moved on. And that really bothered me. The first time I read it, I loved the novel up until the epilogue. The epilogue really just left me frustrated that Elio would not have learned from his father's monologue because it means so much and it was so powerful to me. So it was interesting to me then to read the book again. And then I did a bunch of research on Andre Asimon and about when he was writing the novel. And I watched this interview with him where he talks a lot about feeling almost stuck in those moments for personally for himself. Like he talks about how there's this one wall in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where he had been in an an old relationship and they had kissed against that wall. And it was a moment where it was one of those things where he could have, his life could have gone in a very different direction and he could have stayed with that woman or not. And they ended up not staying together. And so every time he goes to Cambridge, he visits that wall and he thinks of himself in that moment and that time period. And he's always thinking about what if that had happened to me and sort of that alternate timeline for himself. And I don't find that as satisfying because I feel like that means that person is stuck and you know, regardless if that's how he lives his life, he's now married with a few children uh, to a different woman. And I guess in my head, that's not as meaningful because of course I've had relationships in the past, but I guess this speaks to how, you know, how much I love you and how much I'm glad that I 
allowed myself to feel the pain of those breakups because I learned so much about why those relationships would not have become what I wanted them to be. And because I let myself feel that pain and I let myself grow and realize that it's let me get past all of those obstacles, you know, those mental obstacles that really don't have to be there so that, you know, it could clear the path for me to have the kind of relationship that Elio and Oliver had with you, you know? And so I, I know. So I find the movie in that way, just so much more satisfying. And I think that's really the biggest change other than the fact there's a, there's one sort of minor character named Vimini who has leukemia and Vimini takes a lot of Oliver's time which is sort of mirrored in the movie how Elio doesn't ever really know where Oliver is during the day. Uh And a lot of times he's playing poker or he's doing his own thing. But a lot of times in the book, he's talking to Vimini. And then in the movie, she's sort of swapped with the character of Kiara, who is sort of a will they, won't they sort of relationship. Oh, they, they (laughs) will. They did. (laughs) They will and did. In the movie. So I think, I talked for a really long time, uh, so you can share your thoughts. But that is the biggest uh, change to me. And that's why I find a lot more meaning in the movie rather than in the book. Yeah, that um, scene with his father talking to Elio. Oh, don't I mean, get me one, of the, one of the great unexpected monologues of, of the 2010s. Of it, it's kind of... Oh, yeah it's close to the end of the movie and things are uh, things are starting to wrap up but then that just comes out of nowhere and mm-hmm. that scene and Guadagnino and his uh, cinematographer kind of play with your expectations because there are a couple of quick scenes and then that that conversation starts on on a wide angle and that slowly goes in to these medium close-ups and then close-ups of their faces and you're you you're just sucked in engaged in michael stuhlbarg that in particular in 2017 he had one heck of a year so he started in call me by your name which is nominated for a bunch of um oscars and and the only oscar it won uh call me by your name was adapted screenplay by james ivory so that's appropriate that we're uh, mm. talking about an adaptation here because mm-hmm. james ivory won for the screenplay but Stuhlbarg was also in The Shape of Water that year, which won Best Picture. <laughs> and uh, The Post, uh, Steven Spielberg, uh, that mm-hmm. that up-and-coming director. Uh, I think he has some <laughs> promise. Uh, but yeah, Stuhlbarg, uh, one, of the great, one of the great supporting performances of the 2010s. He was oh, not nominated yeah. for I, an I Oscar, which is... I when I think about how unfair that is, yeah. how unjust it is that he wasn't nominated. I think... Nor was Army Hammer nominated. Well, Army Hammer, there are some, I think there are maybe some cracks in his, <laughs> in his acting, to be honest, but there's no one else that I would rather have play either role. The casting this, in this is incredible. Elio's mother, hello. Yeah. Gorgeous queen of my life. I hope that I am her when I'm that age. She's kind of quietly observing and oh, the whole situation. Gorgeous. And upon like a third or fourth rewatch of this, you can... I've kind of come to the understanding that she was aware of their relationship much earlier than even the father was. Yeah, there, and it's interesting. There's a little bit of a shift in her character. In the book, she's really judgmental. 
she is not about Oliver in a lot of ways. Like, oh, she kind interesting. Of, yeah, I think she's very... It, it's kind of... I think she's developed as a little bit of a French, like, standoffish kind uh-huh. of woman. And in the movie, she's so warm. And so I do think that she's caught on a little bit, especially, I think, when she suggests that Elio accompany Oliver to Rome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For the end of the trip. I think there's no way that she didn't know. And she delivers that line. It's very... Her immediate reaction when Sammy, his father, says that Oliver will have to spend a few days in Rome at the end. She's Her first thought is, what about Elio? Yeah. <laughs> so, eh. Right. But, no, but speaking of... Uh, Michael Stuhlbarg, I think we quote him more than anyone else. Yeah, he has such his voice a naturalistic just... and it, it's fully integrated performance. He disappears into it, and he's such oh, a, a dad. He's such a dad. And yeah, just from and when I say just such a dad, it's in these little little moments, like when Oliver comes downstairs to join them for breakfast after sleeping for an entire day of his yeah. greediness going, ah. Awaken from the dead. Uh, or or <laughs> of him of him laughing a little bit too loud at Oliver's jokes when he's leaving. Yeah. Of, of just kind of like going a little too overboard with the laughter. Well, yes, there are these endearing moments with Oliver and Elio and I think it really makes him an interesting character because he's supposed to be an academic. And I know that academics sort of have this stereotype of being cold and a little bit standoffish. And he does have that character a little bit in the book. They talk a lot about dinner drudgery, which is sort of the tradition that they have of having people over for dinner. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times the father in the book has people over who are a little, a, little, a little bit blustering and overconfident and have a lot of academic experience. And he kind of thrives on that while everyone else at the table is a little bit alienated. And they're kind of, they call it dinner drudgery because nobody likes it except for the father. And he kind of has this academic edge to him. And that is so gone in the movie. And like I said, that just comes through in so many endearing moments where, like you said, he's so fatherly and then just tender mm-hmm. in the end where Elio, he, he says if, uh, in, the, in the movie, which I find so loving, is when he says, Ellie Belly, yeah. you know you can talk to us. We're always here to listen. And I think it's so clear when Elio comes back from their trip And he goes and just sits with his dad. And I know that there were moments like that when I was a kid where it was like, my parents would say like, we're always here to talk to you. And I'm like, yeah, Yeah, whatever. right. (laughs) Ruining my life. Yeah, you don't know anything. Like, um, and then there were those moments where, like I was saying, I would come back from SSP, this camp I used to go to, and there weren't words to express why I was crying after coming home from those trips. But I just sort of like, come in and lay on the bed and you know my mom would be like okay like maybe it's time to watch something funny or you know and gosh the way that he uh, interacts with his dad that conversation about i think he was better than me you know when elio thinks and he's like i'm sure he'd say the same of you and that speaks highly of both of you right and elio just scoffs like 
that proves that he's such a caring father that Elio trusts him in his most vulnerable state. But he also has created an environment where Elio can come to him or talk freely about anything, which is most jarring um, at the beginning of the film when he almost has sex with Marzia. Hmm. And he comes and he's telling Oliver that he's just like, I, I, I could have, this is my uh, Timothy Chalamet impression, I could have, I could have had sex with her, but, uh, <laughs> but I didn't. Uh, and then, and then you, the camera turns and it's his father is right there. And his father's like, well, why didn't you? And I'm just like, Jesus Christ. Like, your, your dad's right there. Like, don't, stop talking about this. But that's the environment he's he's created. A complete openness to share your feelings, to, to do whatever you want. And, yeah, they're a little bit more liberal with that kind of stuff in uh, Europe. But, but still, just having that conversation, that type of conversation in front of your father speaks volumes about their relationship and you can say maybe it's a little creepy to talk about that stuff with your dad there i think what they're what they were going at was that here's a father and here are parents that have a, that are allowing their kid to learn on his own to do whatever he wants but to always have the knowledge and the foresight to come to them when when necessary they're not going to sit down they're not going to lecture him or or scold him they're going to wait for him to come to them and then they can give those these monologues well remember in the monologue in the end he goes most parents would wish that this whole thing goes away and their son would land on their feet well i'm not such such a a parent parent. yeah (laughs) and god that line alone could send me into (laughs) into buckets of tears yeah um so the first kiss between elio and oliver happens about about 52 minutes into the movie which is quite a bit of time although it's it's still there's still much movie to go after this is a two hour and ten minute movie but does the book take its time like that with their relationship to let it blossom yes it absolutely does and after watching a few interviews with Andre Asaman, he talks about the reason he wanted to have it be a relationship between two men. And I think that really informs the timeline because initially he wanted to set it in Italy and that's where he started writing about because he's actually Egyptian, Italian, American. Oh. So he did spend a lot of time in Italy as a child And during this interview, he talked about how he placed the story in Italy and he started writing a summary romance novel about a boy and a girl falling in love. And he said there just wasn't enough tension. He said, I've seen this before. I don't know if I can add anything new to this story. And so then he had this sort of realization, oh, it's an extra level of growth and challenge for Elio if he wants something so badly, but he doesn't quite know how to go about it because it's something that he hasn't experienced yet. Right, yeah. He hasn't experienced yet, and he's confused. There's that wonderful scene that's a one-take with them in front of the memorial at World War... Uh, the World War One memorial. Battle of Piave. Yeah. Elio admits to Oliver that he doesn't know 
about the things that matter, the important things, implying his sexuality. And you can tell that just means so much to him to finding out who he is, his identity. And he kind of uses Marzia uh, unfairly in the story by, you know, he has these, has his first kiss when he's first kind of courting Oliver, but Oliver's not really biting back, supposedly. That's when he first finally has sex the first time with uh, Marzia. He, he, he puts his sexual frustrations out through her to try to discover. He, he he goes he goes for Oliver, but he's not really sure who he is. And then he he has sex with Martha, but then he realizes, ah, eh, I I like I I'm not I'm not sure what where I am. And it's with it's through this relationship that he kind of forms out. He he becomes comfortable within himself of uh, deciding uh, who who he is sexually attracted to. Yeah, if I can build on that a little bit more, I really want to dig into, I think, the second biggest theme in this novel, which is really a coming-of-age story. And I really enjoy the fact that the book comes completely from Elio's point of view. He's It's completely out of his mind and... You know that it's separate from a diary because he talks about writing in his diary a lot. So it's straight from his consciousness, which is a little bit different in the movie, which I think is the right choice. I think it's the right choice for Elio to have a little bit of separation from the audience because you get to see the pull and push of both Elio and Oliver at the same time in the movie in the book you're so entrenched in elio's consciousness and his thoughts that you actually don't realize that he's he is kind of being a dick to oliver (laughs) and and i i really want to highlight this line because it stuck out to me so much about being a young kid growing up surrounded by adults who are extremely intelligent and how how that shapes Elio's personality and how he expresses himself and how eventually that makes him more mature, but he still has to fill those gaps being a 17-year-old. So I want to read this quote. It says, I was 17 that year and being the youngest at the table and the least likely to be listened to, I had developed the habit of smuggling as much information into the fewest possible words. So mm. that is such a great way of showing who all of her, who Elio is, and it shows in the movie. Yeah, I love that because he does bring up these things that he's been thinking about so much. We hear a little bit of Elio's inner dialogue. So you know that he's been thinking about these things and and they've been weighing on him when he first starts to flirt with Oliver and maybe notice him sexually. And so, for example, the conversation they have at the table when he says, you know, do you think Oliver's arrogant when he says, later. Later. (laughs) Yeah. And his father says, I think he's shy. Yeah. And so, again, I just want to highlight the fact that this is a 17-year-old kid who is just becoming the person that he you know he doesn't know what he wants to be and he doesn't know who he is and i think it's just such a beautiful 
way of showing that. And and to connect it back to the Battle of Piave conversation, which in the book it's a little bit different. They're at the lake. Um, but at that point we see that he's he has the the words and the confidence, like in the German fairy tale that they talk about, to speak his mind. Oh and, yeah, is it better to speak or to die? Is right. in that German yeah, that's a great quote. Right. And so, yeah, I just... Because when you're 17, you do act a certain way around either your crush or people you look up to. You put, yeah. a, you put on a front. Right. Uh, you know, when he was at the, on the dance floor seeing Oliver hook up with a girl, he, he still was holding on to some hope that uh, he might be gay. You don't know it at, on, upon first watch, but on, on the second watch, you can see he jumps on the dance floor in kind of a way to to both ignore the problem but also to impress Oliver a little bit with his right. dance moves and to be yes. like look look I'm dancing with a girl too I can hook up like yeah. we're playing why are we playing this game like look at us together and then also kind of his uh fake indifference towards Oliver acting it's like so he doesn't well he doesn't care when when obviously all he does is is right. care about Oliver um, yeah, incredible performance from Chalamet. I remember watching this two years ago and being like, this kid's a star. Oh and gosh. sure enough, like, look where we are now. Uh, three years ago, actually. Yeah, 20, it's 2020. Um, his, his facial expressions are so subtle, so powerful. It screams. You don't need the inner dialogue that the book supplies for you when you're watching Timothy Chalamet's face. You yeah. don't need the inner dialogue because he's so incredibly expressive. And I want to go back to a detail as well in the book that is teased in the movie, which is so brilliant to me, this detail. So something he talks about in the book that he's noticed is that Oliver's swimsuit colors change with his moods. And so he can tell when Oliver is being a little bit sharper and edgier, mm -hmm. and that he's going to be in, in a in a mood to push all to push Elio away when he's wearing his red swimsuit, and when he's wearing his green swimsuit, he's sunny, eager, excited to engage with Oliver with Elio, and yellow he sort of describes as a light but edgy. He's still a little bit standoffish. And blue, he's romantic and open. And seeing the different swimsuit colors in the movie is pretty striking. In fact, there's a sort of a time montage where you can tell that days are going by because different colored swimsuits are hung up on the bath mm -hmm. faucets. But I wouldn't have noticed to look for differing attitudes in Oliver had I not read the book. And I think that's a really smart detail to pull out and make visual. Yeah, there, there are a bunch of visual cues that Luca Guadagnino brings to the movie that, that really speak to so much of what the characters are going through. Even sometimes there's some accidents in there as well that, that speak, that really set the scene in the middle of the movie when Elio is waiting for Oliver to come back after they have first kissed, there's uh, Sufjan Stevens' Futile Devices. That It's a remix of that song that he had already, Sufjan had already released, but for the movie it was different. But in that scene, 
there's a close-up of Elio, and then there's these little flickers of light, and then you mm-hmm. see uh, uh, f- the film actually kind of, like, distort and blow up, like, very uh-huh. briefly. And the first time I saw that in the movie theater, I'm like, oh, th- that was a mistake in the projection. But then when you get the DVD and you watch it, it's part of the movie, and I did some research. That was actually a mistake mm-hmm. in post. That little bit of film was actually overexposed, and, and it went through some heat. And um, so that, no. that's a mistake. But Guadagnino decided to keep it in because it added to the ephemeral and ethereal oh, feel. Yeah. Especially uh, with that song in the background. Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah, and the soundtrack incredible we have it on vinyl we listen to it all the time oh, but the opening song, yeah i just can't if i turn that on <laughs> a game I'm over immediately in a better mood. game over dude and of course we have to shout out timothy chalamet for doing all of his own piano work. oh yeah so not only did timothy chalamet he learned to speak italian uh he could speak french already in english but he could speak french already because his dad is French, mm-hmm. but he learned to speak Italian, and then he also, yeah, learned all the piano. He didn't play it before the movie. He only played guitar. He only yeah, played guitar. Yeah, only. Jeez, <laughs> what a what a talentless hack. Um, but yeah, so his musical abilities, along with his acting abilities, truly awe-inspiring. Uh, Sufjan Stevens was only commissioned to write one song for the movie Mystery of Love that mm-hmm. plays uh, when they when they first take their trip to Rome. Uh, Mm. Incredible song that was nominated for an Oscar that year. But he also wrote another song that, which is the visions of Gideon, which plays at the end, which he wasn't asked to write, but, Mm. but he had written that and Guadagnino was like, that's the perfect song to end. And it was just kind of this little happy accident that (laughs) Sufjan went against orders to write another song, but ended up working anyways. And Guadagnino was like, well, you already have two songs in this movie. Let's get another one in there. I think a re- I think your song, Feudal Devices, would work in this movie, but it needs to be changed a little bit to fit the tone. So that's where the remix comes in that we hear in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I- incredible, incredible soundtrack. And I kind of like how Su- Sufjan, he scores the movie, but it's he's only a, a portion of it. Like, he he's essentially the theme... His music is essentially the theme of the movie, but there's also other music incorporated in there mm-hmm. to, to add to the... There's 80 songs in there, but there's also classical music that really sets the, the, t- the tone. Yes, and the classical music is a bit of character building in the book because Elio, through the whole thing, book and the movie, is transcribing music. And in an interview that I watched with Andre Asimov, he talks about how... That was his way of demonstrating that Elio has a lot of different pieces to his identity and that he's trying to bring all of those into harmony in himself. And so, for example, in the book, it specifically names a piece by Hayden that was written for four different instruments that he's trying to transpose into piano music. And so that to me was really interesting because I had not listened to the song that they talk about or the piece that they talk about in the book, but 
when Andre Asamon explained why he chose that piece with four instruments to come in harmony into harmony in one instrument, that was really interesting to me. And I didn't think about how that's Elio sort of taking all these pieces and trying to figure out how they fit into his life and his identity. A little detail concerning the cinematography to add to kind of Elio's uh, mindset um, to to give it that dreamlike quality and the feeling of a memory of nostalgia, Guadagnino only incorporated one single 35 millimeter lens to shoot the entire thing, which is very uncommon. Normally there are different kinds of lenses like wide angle lenses or telephoto lenses or, or standard or you know ultra wide. But in this case, it was just one lens. So it, it, in that case, certain shots kind of like go in and out of focus, but that but that in and out of focus was part was a strategic decision of how, so, like for instance, there's that scene in Rome where they're drunk and kissing and they go up against mm. the wall and the camera goes up and it kind of like goes in and out of focus because normally what would happen was depending on your location. As a cinematographer, you would switch out your lens to get the focus, but they keep one, and they and it's for every shot, and it's kind of it, it adds this dreamlike texture well, to it. Well, if I can get technical with you, what are the lines and visions of Gideon? Is it a video? Oh. He's talking about is it the last time I saw you, and is it a video or is it real? Yeah. And so it's sort of that play of remembering but also being in the moment and trying to be in the moment and savoring those things for a time when you know that they're just going to be memories yeah so that that's what Uh-oh. yeah Nino, you sob yeah that so that's why and I, I can't i couldn't based on my research i couldn't find any other movies that have done this use one lens it, that's such a, a risky thing to do because exactly what i said you get shots that go in and out of focus but mm. that was part of it uh for Guadagnino and his team another cool fun fact the at the dancing scene which also features uh focus that goes in and out when elio is watching oliver dance he kind of sits back and and that fuzziness comes from his immediate despair of realizing oh maybe oliver is not gay however going back to the fun fact um in, in that scene, the psychedelic fur is Love My Way, which is played oh, twice in the movie. Love, love uh, that song. The opening lyrics are, there's an army on the dance floor. And in the movie, there's literally <laughs> army, army hammer on the dance floor. That's just a little fun little thing that I wanted to point love out. Love my yeah. way. Uh, you can't see me, but I'm dancing like army hammer. She is on the couch. <laughs> she is dead. Uh, we should say, Laura has... Uh, already downed a margarita that i made for her <laughs> i can't record without being a little buzzed i'll be honest i'm nervous <laughs> hey yeah we all this is we're new at this we gotta we gotta have a little sauce um but yeah that's uh, another great detail is uh the waterfall scene with mm-hmm. that kind of mist that's going over it, it's like they're in the clouds again like they're in the dream and a fun fact behind that that's not actually a real waterfall it's a really? hydroelectric dam and which the floodgates only open once a year to let off pressure so they had to time their shoot exactly and they only had a couple takes to get get that shot right of them running through with it going down 
correct? Yes. Yeah, most of this movie was shot in Italy. Uh, most of it shot was shot in uh, Crema, which Crema. they which they mention in the film. Crema. Crema. Yeah, I love how the opening uh, title is somewhere in Italy. That that's great. Which is in fact in the book. So cool. it's never mentioned. It's it takes place in B dash, which is kind of an old literary mechanism to replace either a place or a name that isn't listed or isn't published. So it takes place in B dash because. I didn't know those Andre a mechanism. That's, yeah. that's cool. If you if you read Jane Austen or some novels like that, it'll just replace like Mr. M dash or but uh, Oh, cool. But Andre Asimov decided he wanted it to be in Italy, but he eventually decided not to place it in any place specific to sort of keep that ambiguous this could happen in any place mm. feeling, but Elio actually does write it in a book that he purchases for Oliver. He writes somewhere in Italy in the 80s or something oh, like that. So it's sort cool. of a, something that they come back to. But do you have anything else before you want to wrap up? Because I have one more sort of big way of sort of tying Elio and Oliver's character. Oh, Andre Asimov, uh, he makes a cameo in the yes. movie as Monir. I think that's how you pronounce it. One of he's the- so uh, the He's so Sonny and Cher, one of the, he's wearing blue in it. So that, that's kind of a cool little callback to that. All right, Laura. So the last thing I wanted to talk about is the title and how it's significant to the characters in the book and in the movie. So I was really interested in it because I don't think I quite grasped the depth the first time I watched the movie. And it's taken me my whole journey with Call Me By Your Name up until this point to really appreciate the depth of what that meant to those two. Because I, excuse me if I can fall back on my own relationship <laughs> for a moment. So. There were a few times when I was rewatching this or rereading it where I was trying to put myself in that position. I just wasn't seeing myself get a deeper relationship out of that practice of maybe calling you by my name and you calling me by yours. Uh -huh. And it happens three times in the movie, in the book. It happens when they're playing around in the water with Dr. Perlman or Mr. Perlman. It happens when they first sleep together, after they first sleep together, and over the phone, which sort of is the callback that Oliver hasn't forgotten and maybe isn't leaving his feelings in the past for Elio, even though he's getting married. So I realized throughout this novel or this story that it's sort of the key that it's not just a lustful relationship. And of course, it's a very sexual movie. We have the peach scene, which we didn't talk about, which is in the book. We have the time where Oliver catches Elio starting to masturbate in his room and he gets really embarrassed. We have butt shots of both Army Hammer and Timothy Chalamet. We have the sex scene between Marcia, actually two sex scenes between Marcia and Elio. So it's very, very sexual. But I think the whole reason the title is significant is because Elio is trying to find himself. And as a young love, as a first love, you tend to lose yourself in that other person and sort of become slightly obsessed, as I'm sure we've all discovered. But Elio 
doesn't just become lustfully obsessive. He really starts to take Oliver's personality and integrate it into who he wants to become. And in the movie, this the second time after they've slept together, Oliver tells him this line, I noticed too that they're upside down, mm. which is so sweet because I realized that if you turn it right side up, they would be in each other's places. Right? So it's sort of showing you that they're mirror images of each other. And the way that we see that that practice for them is so significant shows Elio's growth in coming to terms with the fact that he's gay and he had this beautiful friendship, maybe even more than a friendship, <laughs> with Oliver. And that he's just become sort of a man. Like he's, he's completed that coming of age story. And he will probably have more pain to go through in his life. But he's the kind of person who will come out stronger and with less obstacles because he's dealt with them in the past rather than with more pain to get himself through because he's not dealing with it properly in the moment. So that's why I think the title is so powerful Mm -hmm. and expresses exactly what the novel and the movie are trying to remind in the audience. Yeah, like through love you can you and your partner can put yourself in each other and like you come face to face with yourself and you, and you learn and grow from that love and and even if that love ends that ending is also signifies more growth because you can now ha- you have this person forever and you can you can reflect always go back always go back to your past self and think about where you are in that relationship and mm-hmm. and and see and see you can see the impact of that time even though that that time was fleeting and and didn't last so yeah yeah and i definitely i definitely totally agree with you i definitely see the power from it and uh, yeah and of course there's a reminder at the end that he's still a kid when he calls his mom at the train station i think that's a really i think it makes it so evident that he has gone through all this growth but he's still 17 and he had his heart broken and you know he calls his mom and he's trying to be strong but he gets really sad and he starts crying and he's like can you just come get me like you reminded oh yeah he is he is uh, 17 (laughs) and so yeah and it's just that push and pull of constantly growing but at the same time sometimes you're just in the headspace of a 17 year old and you just want your mom to come and get you. And so I guess to to completely wrap up, after watching a a few interviews with Andre Asimov, he talks about how many emails and letters he got from fans that said, I cried and cried, I'm still crying after reading the book and watching the movie. And he just straight up says, I don't know why you would cry. And so he put out this question on Twitter, what about this would make you cry? What about this story would make you cry? And Everything. Of course, he's, yeah, he's, he's gotten letters and stuff in return saying, well, I wish my parents had treated me that way when I came out, or this just reminds me of my first love and all this. And so I think... Out of all of this podcast, I I think it this is my response to why I cried because I feel so emotionally moved by that idea that I'm constantly growing, but I'm also constantly in the mind of whatever age I am, you know, and it's it's painful to grow and it's painful to say goodbye to memories, but 
hopefully you're able to internalize that and uh. deal with it in an appropriate way. Yeah, so uh, yeah, four stars with the movie. Definitely check this out. Would you recommend the book too? I do recommend the book. I think the end is... Mm -hmm. You know, it's different, but I do recommend the book. It still made me cry. I love both the book and the movie. Yeah. If you need a good cry or if you just want to see some nice, beautiful filmmaking, watch the film. All right. You can find me on Letterboxd. My handle is Danny G Reviews. And why don't we go ahead and announce what we'll be doing next week so our fans can prepare. So next week, prepare for... Shutter, Shutter Island. Island. Um, yeah. Well, I hope you enjoy this first episode. Yeah, thanks uh, for listening. Yeah. I really appreciate it, Mom and Dad. And yeah, hopefully by they'll get a couple more people uh, next episode. Yeah. All right, you sexy idiots. <laughs> I don't know how to sign off yet, but uh, <laughs> we're new at this. Okay. I guess we should say bye. bye.